Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've had kind of a weird day, and it's actually because of this podcast episode and the topic I was going to discuss. As I was doing a little bit of research earlier today, I came across something I've never seen before, and it kind of was just worlds collide. Uh, And I'm going to get into all of that and explain what happened as I go through this story. If you subscribe to Frank McKenna's Frank on Fraud newsletter, then uh, I hope you guys read those articles. They're always so good. You might have seen his update on refund.ai. I guess it's a play on the words refund and defend.ai. Don't search for it now because the website no longer exists. Uh, It was up last week claiming to be a top refund fraud detection company. There was talk of them getting a lot of VC funding and they were meeting with Shopify and Loop and all these big companies and they were the next big thing. Uh, And now it's no longer. You know, if you read Frank's newsletter, you know a little bit about this story, but uh, I'm going to talk about it a bit. The second company just this year, and we're in February, that I'm talking about on this podcast that has claimed to help merchants fight fraud of some kind. Then they have been accused of being fraudulent themselves. The first one was chargeback surety. You probably heard Sean Kelly and I mentioned it on Tuesday's episode a little bit. Um, I do actually have a pretty interesting follow-up from that story. Uh, Frank McKenna and I uh, I didn't mean to drop his name so much in the first couple minutes of this episode, but Frank and I hopped on a call with one of the victims from there and got a lot of more information. I need to follow up with her to see if she might be willing to join me on the podcast. But the first company, as I said, was Chargeback Surety, and they claimed to help merchants fight chargeback fraud, and they ended up being fraudulent and being civilly sued in District Court of California by the U.S. District Attorney there. You know, that was the first one. I don't think anything will ever top NS8. And if you know, you know, because I'm not going to get into that whole story. Although somewhere deep in the archives of fraudology is at least one episode that told that entire story because it was bonkers. They, I think, intentionally, I mean, they intentionally didn't have a product at first and they were claiming a lot of things that weren't true. In Chargeback Surety's case, they were, they were reducing chargeback ratios, but they were doing it illegally with microtransactions and uh, shell companies. If you didn't hear that message or that episode, I think it was about a month ago or so. This company that I'm going to talk about today, like I said, was claiming to defend and identify refund fraud. Refund fraud is something that I've talked about off and on throughout this podcast. If you are a retailer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I prefer to call it refund claims fraud because. It's not necessarily return fraud and it's not 
just refund. It's defrauding the claims process of a refund. It's not when somebody returns the item and gets a refund back. It's when someone doesn't return the item, but still gets a refund. So they get to keep the item and they get a refund on their card rather than charging a chargeback, which would be friendly fraud. Part of the reason I know part of the reason why refund fraud is on the rise is because people don't want to issue chargebacks anymore because so many merchants are defending themselves. Um, as you know, we discussed on Tuesday's episode. So instead, where else do they go? They go to the refund process, which up until very recently was never really looked at. Fraud never had anything to do with it. It was a customer service thing for retailers. When a customer would call and say, I didn't get the item. It was shipped to my address. It says that it was delivered. I didn't get it. Or maybe I didn't get it. And then you know, you look up the tracking information and it was lost somewhere. There's actually five different types of refund fraud um, or refund claims fraud. And it's really the five different reasons why someone, well, actually four of them are different reasons why a customer will get a refund without having to return the item. One would be that they never got the package. The other would be that it was damaged, uh, whether the package was damaged or the item inside was damaged. I just had that happen to me uh, the other day. It was something I got for my daughter. Something was broken and had to return it. Um, but I'm returning the item back to the retailer that that sent it to me and they sent me uh, a replacement. So, you know, that's easy, right? I mean, I have no problem returning the item back because I don't want it. It's broken. They never used, uh, not, I shouldn't say never, but most retailers didn't ask for it back when it was, you know, claimed as damaged or broken. But now they have to because of refund fraud, because people were just claiming it when that wasn't the case. Some retailers are asking for pictures of the damage. Um, just different things like that. The other way is to say that you received an empty box, or maybe you ordered two items and one was in the box and one wasn't. That actually just happened to me yesterday or today. Wow, I'm having all of these things happen to me. I actually have not, I need to knock on some wood, but I've not had a package not come at all. But um, we recently moved within the same city we've been in for the last year and a half. And so, you know, with moving, we need to get a lot of new items. And so, I've been buying a lot online. And so I've had a lot of things happen where, you know, this happened where I ordered three things and the most expensive thing was not in the box, but according to the order online, it was. That's legitimate. So I now have to call that company because they don't have um, the ability to return something online, which is driving me crazy. But that's, I know that they took that away for this reason. It's like, this is why we can't have nice things, guys, because of refund fraud. You know, that's the third one. Um, And then the fourth one is when someone returns something to the warehouse and they or they claim that they returned it, they send it back to the warehouse. And for some reason, it doesn't get to the warehouse. Customer service will often give a refund for that as well, right? Because it's not your fault that the package got lost or, you know, that the item was damaged on the way back or the box was full of broken glass and the warehouse has a policy to not open any boxes that sound like broken glass. So they're just going to assume that it was that $3,000 laptop. Then they're going to go, you know, they're going to give you the refund and throw it away so that nobody gets hurt. You know, those are the four different ways. There's actually five methods because two of the methods are really gaming the system between returning the item to the warehouse. Uh, One of them is sending an empty box or sending a box full of garbage or pinata candy or a can of peas or a piece of wood that's the exact same weight as the item that was shipped to the customer. 
and dry ice to match the weight of the item that was, you know, matched to the customer. So all that the warehouse gets back is a soggy box. And there's so many different things, but that's one of them. I just call it boxing or empty box. And then the fifth one is the fraudster's favorite, the refund fraudster's favorite. And they started to call almost everything FTID fraud. And I'm like, that's I mean, come on, guys, keep up with my terms. I don't want to keep up with your terms. I'm kidding. But FTID stands for fake tracking ID. So um, there's various different ways that they're manipulating shipping labels, that they are sending things to the same zip code to make it look like it's going to the warehouse, but really it's going to an empty lot or a business of some kind. And they're just getting an envelope with junk mail in it, you know, shipped, addressed to another company. Uh, So they're not going to try to find that company they're just going to throw it away. Uh, But when someone calls customer service and says, I returned that laptop, I returned, you know, that expensive designer handbag, I returned, you know, insert all the popular items for resale here, the gaming console, the sneakers, et cetera, et cetera. Customer services inclination is, well, it looks like it's back at our warehouse. So I guess our warehouse hasn't checked it in yet. We'll give a courtesy refund. That used to be the case. It can't be. I mean, there are still some companies doing it, but I think they're all learning quickly. And that's that's not the case. If you aren't familiar with refund fraud and you want to know more, I'll try to remember to put a couple of links in the show notes to past episodes on this topic. I had Diana Gajic physic as visit uh, Fraudology last year when she was still with Finish Line and JD Sports North America. And she and I talked about how herself and I and a group of about 25 of the you know very large branded retailers in the US uh, and a couple in Canada and Europe uh, actually discovered refund fraud. Uh, it'll be four years next month, actually almost exactly in a month. Uh, it was the first week of COVID shutdown. I think it was March 15th or 16th, if I remember correctly, that we had the first call and just trying to figure out why there were so many INR um, inventory not received or... Um, DNR delivery not received claims. And we legitimately thought it was, you know, shipping companies and those errors. Um, It only came to fraud because every other department had tried to figure out what was going on. And, you know, supply chain and everyone else was like, why are these up so much? Why are we giving so many refunds through customer service for this? What's happening? Is there something to do with COVID? Is it, you know, because it was just starting. And we learned within the next week that it was malicious. It was intentional systematic fraud. And the difference to me between what people call friendly fraud uh, and intentional systematic fraud is that you can identify intentional systematic fraud. There are patterns to it. Um, I'm obviously not going to say all the patterns on the podcast, but there are. And if you've been in fraud long enough, you know that that's true for any type of fraud. You can start to see patterns of behavior, patterns of data, patterns of different pieces. You just need to know what data to look at and where in the customer life cycle to take action. So I wanted to give just a little brief background on refunding before, uh, and that's the verb that has been coined by the refunders themselves um, are refund fraudsters. And it's a pretty interesting group of people. They are often young adults, um, often male, but not always, um, who really love to game the system. They love to, you know, they've probably played video games most of their lives and just, you know, love to be able to game the system and find, you know, that hidden chalice or find the bug or whatever it is. And so, you know, find the bug in the code or, 
you know, they want to stick it to the man and all those things. It's kind of become this subculture. And I've studied it for the last four years, uh, primarily on Telegram, but Discord as well. I've been a part of several of their subgroups for many years. I am a quiet member, but I do uh, read a lot and uh, consume the information. I also was fortunate enough to meet someone who had kind of accidentally stumbled upon these groups early on in their infancy and started to talk with them and kind of created a bunch of sock puppets, but he never actually did refund fraud himself, at least as far as I could tell. Um, I always you know, was a little bit, kept my distance a little bit, but I was fascinated by how much information he was willing to give up. And he was a part of a lot of private groups. So there's public groups on Telegram. That's often where people are bragging what they can do to different companies. They'll say, you know, I can hit this company for up to $2,000 on up to five items, pay me 30% of the order value, and I'll get you all your money back. They're advertising their services, their refunders, their advertising. So you can gain a lot through that and you can look you know, through that. And then there are others who will sometimes have conversations on there and say, oh, this didn't work, but this will work and you know, that type of thing. When you get into the private groups, some of them are called cook groups. That's where all the information is really shared, where they really go into detail of this is step-by-step how I hit this company. This is step-by-step how I hit this company. Here, let me show you all screen share. I'll show you exactly how to do it. They're all helping each other. Those are private. And these days they often um, cost a fee in Bitcoin because uh, they know that most law enforcement have rules not to provide any compensation to fraudsters. It's important to know that there's those two different types of information, right? There's the public information that anyone can find if they know what groups to join and, and what groups to be a part of. They're public. And then there's the private groups. And those are the ones that really tell the most and will share the most. And they're under the assumption that everyone in that group is doing the same thing. And so they'll you know, freely share information as long as you're willing to give information. It's kind of that give a penny, take a penny kind of atmosphere. Not too dissimilar from how I run merchant, you know, collaboration calls and, you know, merchant collaboration, you know, different groups and, you know, how I will be soon running the Fraudology uh, membership group, which I am so excited to officially launch very, very soon. And so, you know, that's, I'm often saying, you know, hey, ask a question and answer a question, you know, provide information too. Don't just sit there and you know, take it all in. And I know that there are some companies that have to have that rule where they tell their employees they can't share anything, but you can still share general information. I mean, I've never asked any company to share metrics or any company secrets or anything like that, but it is a little more difficult to share information when you're on the good side than when you're on the fraudster side, because when you're on the fraudster side, you don't have to worry about your privacy laws or, you know, your legal department getting involved or something like that because you don't have them. Anyway, over the last few years, because refund claims fraud has become such a problem, Obviously, there have been some companies popping up to prevent it and to identify it. There's been you know, some existing companies who have tried to say that their technology that can identify payment fraud can also identify refund fraud if they just augment this or that. I have yet to see any of those that really do a great job. There's one that is pretty good, uh, but that's out of all of them. And then there have been a few newer companies that have popped up. And uh, out of three in the last year that I've known of that were brand new companies, 
set up for refund fraud. All three of them have now closed down as of last week with this new latest one for different reasons. But I think the biggest reason is that they did not understand this industry. They thought that they could come in say, hey, I have the silver bullet and that everyone would sign up. They did get a few people to sign up you know, for each company, but they didn't understand the industry and they didn't understand the problem enough at all. Uh, so they were just trying to solve one type of refund fraud. So maybe just INRs or maybe just, you know, FTIDs or something or just boxing, but not understanding that they often start with INRs and then they go to damaged or missing items and then they go to boxing and then they go to FTID. It's this steady stream where they go from one to the next to the next as they're being stopped and identified um, as companies are putting more things in place for it. As companies are requiring that you take pictures of the item if it's broken or they are trying to do their best to link accounts on the in the back end to see, you know, if they have anyone who has set up 10 different accounts with the same phone number. Uh, unfortunately, the fraudsters know that too. So they're just setting up more and more Google voice numbers, but, and more and more different free emails. And, you know, there are some people that are just setting up these kind of synthetic IDs for this purpose and then selling them off. So it's become this whole ecosystem where there's all different services being offered around this, this type of fraud. But so anyway, I mean, that's what I've seen is that these, the three companies that I know of who are no longer, they were just trying to solve one of those problems or one of those methods. And it's just not sustainable. You need to be able to understand the whole problem and understand the companies themselves and what they really need. They can't be declining refunds to good customers. That would be a horrible customer experience. They need to have a way to, to be able to identify this person is 100% fraudulent here's why. And here's all the reasons why not just one, not just this behavior is a little bit out of the norm. So, you know, that's why I've seen those come and go. This one, however, is a special one. And like I said, it was called refund.ai. So refund and defend, I think it's clever. I won't name the other ones because they uh, should not be with this aligned with this company. They were, you know, from what I know, and I met, you know, with the founders of both of those companies, I think they had good intentions. Uh, they just really didn't understand the industry or the whole problem. So this company was claiming that they could identify refund fraud, specifically fake TID. So um, fake tracking ID. Like I said, there's several different types of fake tracking ID methods. And basically what they were doing, it was a very, it was a pretty simplistic API that they were plugging in on the back end. And they were basically just looking at address that, an item was sent to and the address that a refunded. So if an item was being shipped back to the warehouse, what was the zip code that that was coming from? Because if, you know, I hired a refunder to get my money back for me, if I had it sent to my house or my mom's house or a friend's house or the house for sale down the street, I wanted someone else to do it because they knew exactly how to gain the system at this specific company. I would give them all my order information. And in some cases, they would ship the box from their address. So if they ship their the box from their address to go back to the warehouse, that would look fraudulent. Now, there are good cases where that can happen, where maybe, you know, I sent a gift to my sister after I delivered it to me and she needs to return it. Or maybe I'm traveling and I'm returning it from a different zip code or I drove across town and I'm delivering it in a different zip code. Like there are good cases and you always have to think about those when you're trying to solve a problem with a product. 
but you know, you could at least help narrow it down a little bit, but you also have to think about, well, what are the fraudsters going to do to adapt? Okay. Well, then they're just going to say, Hey, you have to send the box. I'll send you the manipulated tracking label. The other thing they were doing was looking at the weight of boxes coming back. So if I was sent a, you know, 50 pound box and I'm sending back, you know, just a few ounces in like a little bit of a, a padded envelope or something like that. That's going to look really suspicious that I'm probably not sending back that TV or whatever it was that I bought. They're looking at those things and, and those are okay, sure. But again, there are ways to get around that. You can just put dry ice in there so that the, the initial scan shows the weight is exactly the same weight as what was shipped to the address. So they're just looking at one type of fraud, fake TID fraud, and they're just looking at these two different types, which can change very quickly. If if refunders realize that's what you're doing, they will adapt their processes. So it's not going to be sustainable, but you know that's what these were doing. And it turned out that these were three guys who were college students at a university in California. And they claimed that this was a project for school and that it started to get some attention from VCs. And so they decided to go out to several different merchants that they knew were being hit by refund fraud because of public telegram groups and sell this product. And it looks like they had, you know, a handful of customers. I know of at least one. It's not any, I actually had to Google the company because I'd never heard of it before, but there are so many small retailers that are getting hit with refund fraud now that the bigger guys have found some ways to make it harder. It's really impacting small businesses too, which is just infuriating on another level. But so anyway, I, you know, I know that at least one of the businesses was kind of a, a niche business, um, but they sold 200 to $500 worth of item. You know, each item was 200 to $500. So, you know, knowing that refunders generally cash out their money or, you know, liquidate their funds by selling, reselling items that they could probably, you know, get at least 50% of that uh, on different marketplaces and different things like that. These merchants hired them to do this thinking, okay, they have the answers. And there was a part on their website that I read last week that said, uh, I didn't take a screenshot of it, but uh, in their FAQ said that one of the reasons why they know this space so well is that they've been studying refunding since 2021, which I'm like, that's only a couple of years. I've been saying it since early 2020. To my knowledge, that's when we all realized what was happening to more than just one big conglomerate, because there was one large conglomerate that was happening to for years. But I kept hearing that fraud referred to as um, that brand's fraud. So just, oh, that's company X fraud, not refund fraud. And so I, you know, but it, it it was that. So it was getting hit, you know, one or two of the biggest merchants for a few years. But uh, when it started hitting uh, that other tier of merchants, that's when I learned about it. And I think everyone else did in the industry because I did my best to pull the fire alarm, even though it was COVID. I was presenting virtually on like every conference I could for free uh, because I just wanted to get the, the news out. Uh, Diana and I were both quoted in a Wall Street Journal article about it in 2021. I mean, we really tried hard to get the word out as much as we could because we wanted people to understand this is actually fraud. This is not bad customers. This is fraud and you need to be able to stop it and you need to be able to identify it. These guys said that they studied a lot of different groups on Telegram um, pre- public groups to be able to understand how it worked. And that was why they were able to come up with this product. I know I've been promising to tell you more about SPEC and why I invited them to sponsor episodes of Fraudology. And 
There's actually so many things that I want to tell you and will tell you over the next several weeks. But the first thing I want to make sure that you hear about is their trust cloud. Specs Trust Cloud protects the integrity of the digital user while simplifying the risk process. It allows you to discover insights across the entire digital user experience. It allows you to catch attacks early. With access to full visibility, you can scan visitor behavior across their entire journey to catch the risk patterns that traditional fraud check APIs miss. Visualize the flow of attacks, identifying areas to catch them early, and leaving bad actors with nowhere to hide. It also allows you to start each journey with instant trust. You can boost platform integrity by instantly welcoming return customers to their personal account experience, while your trust platform invisibly screens for signs of compromise and abuse. It also allows you to remove friction for good customers and increase conversions. By using a single source of truth, you can detect evolving fraud attacks and identify conversion drop-offs and optimize your payment strategy. The bottom line is when you're able to to see every customer's behavior from the moment that they enter your website until the time of checkout or when they open up a new account, you can identify that before the fake account is made, before the transaction is even made and now you've got a fraud transaction in your platform. It's honestly game changing and I'm really excited for more people to learn about it. So to learn more about Spec and this new technology and especially their Spec Trust Cloud, go to www.specprotected.com. There was another component of their business and that was intelligence. So they said that, you know, because they're members of a few groups on Telegram, they'd be able to tell you uh, if your company was being hit. And sometimes they might be able to tell you an address or a phone number of an order that was, you know, posted as a vouch. I did that for a few merchants in the very beginning because there were people that were forgetting to black out the address or the name or the account number when they would post, hey, this refunder you know, got me my money back. Thanks so much. And they would send a screenshot of what they ordered. Sometimes they'd forget to block out their information. Now they almost never forget to do that. So, but they were claiming to do that. And I was like, okay, whatever. Well, Brett Johnson, and if those of you uh, don't know who he is, he was actually my partner on my first podcast, the online broadcast, uh, which I think we started in 2018. We know obviously no longer have a podcast together, but um, Brett is a former online fraudster and he was one of the first from way back in the day, like in the early 2000s, and he served prison time for it. And um, he is now reformed. I gave him a really hard time when we first met because I had always wanted to have a former fraudster speak at a conference where I was heading up the programming and selecting the speakers. But I wanted to make sure that I wasn't bringing a fox in the hen house. You know, I wanted to make sure I wasn't bringing someone in who would build relationships with merchants who would trust them because I brought them in and then ask questions that would maybe help them learn how to get around certain things. So I vetted him really for six months and um, really asked a lot of questions, talked to you know, a lot of people that knew him who had worked with him before, et cetera, before having him speak at his first conference. 
And he posted about that actually last week on LinkedIn and he tagged me, which was, you know, nice of him. I think he said that I said he might, I didn't want him to be a wolf in the hen house. I think he was mixing up wolf and sheep's clothing and fox in the hen house. But either way, I mean, the metaphor makes sense. He talked about how, you know, he understood why I was being so protective, especially since he's now been let in on this side a fair amount. And then he outed this company, Refund.ai, and he said that uh, he had a meeting with the founders and the founders, I guess, um, he was their hero or they looked up to him. And so they were really excited to meet him. And as he was, he has a pretty good bullshit detector. And as and I don't always, um, we don't have the same style <laughs> in, in communication. He has a good bullshit detector. And as they were talking, he said, wait, did you guys commit refund fraud or are you committing refund fraud now? And one of them admitted yes. And I think they said that was of the past, though. We want to go legit like you. But, you know, the truth of the matter is for all the people on the fraud side who say that they want to go legit, they think it's easy. They think that they're just going to be able to call up a company and get in and be able to go on the light side and get paid more money by the companies. And that's just not how it works. That's not how it ever works, especially anyone in the fraud department. We don't trust anybody from the outside. So... You know, they were trying to find out how he did it and stuff. But that's usually my first clue is if they think it's going to happen really fast and they have short patience, then, you know, it's not going to last. Also, I always ask them their reason. There's been a few former fraudsters over the years that have contacted me only because, you know, Brett has given me credit, which is very kind of him. And I, I don't know, maybe they think I'm a king banker or something, but there's only been two former fraudsters over the last several years, over the last decade, I should say, that I have believed um, have come to the light side and have stayed there. And they have. Um, and they've been checked out by the FBI to make sure that they're not, you know, committing fraud right now. So I, you know, trust them a fair amount that they aren't. But for those two, there's probably been at least seven or eight that I know of that have been like, oh yeah, I want to, I want to come to the white hat side. And then they realize it's hard and it takes time. And they realize they're never going to make as much money as they did on the, you know, the dark side. And they go back there. After Brett had that conversation, he outed them on LinkedIn in that post where he said, you know, Carice was worried that I would be a, a wolf in the hen house. And these guys are actually that. He also, he was really alerting the merchant community and everyone else that, hey, this is not a legit company. They're actually fraudsters themselves. And what it turned out was, or what was most likely was the, especially the intelligence side of their business was really them being involved in the private groups on Telegram and being able to know exactly how people were, you know, hitting their clients and telling them those things and essentially ratting out the competition. So, you know, whether they were intending on continuing to commit refund fraud once this product got up and running in, in their minds. Or they were, you know, gonna, they thought that they would retire once they hit a certain point. They certainly weren't going to tell anyone how they were hitting them, right? And so they were going to rat out their competition. So someone, and I don't know if it was Brett or not, but someone ratted out. So someone, and I don't know if it was Brett or who it was, but someone posted on Telegram in a group uh, a member of, it has thousands of members. So it's, you know, it's a public group. Somebody posted a screenshot of Brett's LinkedIn post and he named the three founders and 
the refund fraudster community didn't like that so much. I mean, that one post had like 4,000 reactions and almost 300 comments. And I read every single one of them, uh, which a lot of them were not appropriate or okay. <laughs> you know, I don't like reading the way that they talk. Um, they're just very crass. But, you know, there were some interesting comments kind of woven throughout there that helped me get more information about how their API worked and all of that. Well, several people that were on that thread decided to dox those three founders. So they got, you know, their social security number, their names, their, you know, obviously where they went to college and um, all kinds of stuff. I know that there were people sending uh, letters to the Dean of Students about the conduct of these three students at their college. I know that they got their parents' names and were, you know, sending them things and saying, you should be disappointed in your children. Um, they just, they went off the rails. They talked about swatting them. I don't think that happened, but you know, you never know. Really, hell hath no fury like a refunder scorned, right? Like they were really upset that they were going to be ratted out by somebody that, or by three people that, you know, they were in their tribe, right? Were in their group because they didn't know their aliases online. They couldn't necessarily kick them out of those groups, but they could, you know, dox them there. They then hit their website and um, compromised their API. And soon after that, and I'm sure they got, you know, other threats and things like that. Soon after that, the website went down, the LinkedIn page for the company went down, the LinkedIn page for the three founders uh, can't be found. Uh, one of their TikToks is down, like just all of their social media is now been turned off. They've gone dark and probably rightfully so because they there were a lot of people that were upset that they were trying to basically straddle the fence, right? And go in both directions. So like I said, the product was a simple API. It wasn't anything that I thought was like, oh, wow, this is great. However, I mean, the intelligence that they could get from private groups would be good, but they would be filtering that out. You just have to imagine that that's what they'd be doing. And again, these are all things that are alleged. However, I have to think that because the website is down and these guys have gone dark um, and some of the other things that I learned throughout this research that it sure looks credible to me, uh, but I never want to, you know, accuse anyone of anything that they didn't do. So I just want to put a blanket allegedly all over this web, all over this podcast episode. So the funny, not funny part of this um, that I mentioned at the top of the episode is that as I was reading the comments, there were so there were about three or four different posts in this group about uh, Brett's posts because he then posted a follow up, you know, that their website was down and, uh, and, you know, that these guys had been doxxed and found out, you know, by the refunder groups and all that uh, on his LinkedIn. I was reading the comments of all of these posts, just, you know, trying to get more information about the product. And, you know, you just never know. So I was kind of skimming through it. And somebody posted in one of them, oh, this looks like a similar product to refund, meaning I wasn't sure if they meant it was a fraudulent product, or it's a product to detect refund fraud. They posted a link to a LinkedIn post. And because it was, you know, a LinkedIn post, I clicked on it. It went straight to a post that I made four months ago about the launch of the refund fraud, uh, refund claims fraud module on the SPAC platform. I have never been scrolling through Telegram reading uh, things that refund fraudsters post to find anything about myself. And that was really weird to see like my face and my post uh, come up in their threads. Thankfully, uh, nobody else really 
comment on on that. That was from a few days ago. I'm not too worried about it, but it definitely, you know, caused a little bit of concern and it was just weird. It felt like a violation, even though I'm fully aware that I am recording a public podcast right now and that I posted that post publicly on LinkedIn. But I think because Brett tagged me, I mean, I've been trying to stay very intentionally under the radar um, of that side of the world. And I try not to mess with that side of the world, right? I don't ever comment in in any of those you know, groups. I don't ever, you know, put myself on the radar. I don't ever talk to them. But because I can only assume that because Brett tagged me that somebody did their homework and went through all of my posts Um or maybe they're able, maybe they had um, some kind of a searchable tool for refund fraud. I don't know. But it was from four, four months ago. And I know I've posted quite a bit since then. So that's some dedication there. I'm very passionate about refund fraud and detecting it and do feel like in combination with, you know, Diana Gajek-Fizik, who was at Finish Line and JD Sports, and they really were able to stop their refund fraud problem. Uh, for a long time, and uh, with other merchants as well that I can't name, I really believe that you know we came up with a pretty incredible product, and uh, the Spec platform is able to provide all the data needed to be able to help companies make their own decisions on you know whether a transaction should be refunded or not when there's a claim made. Um, that's the simplest version of it. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about different approaches to identify refund fraud that I've seen in the market. And then just a little bit about what I think needs to be part of a solution. I'm, yes, those things that I believe need to be part of a solution are part of the refund claims fraud module. And I really need to come up with a better name for that because it's just such a mouthful. But uh, I am not the quippy one in... (laughs) in life. So certainly send the, and obviously refund was taken. So feel free to send me your ideas if you have any, but right now it's the refund claims from module or RCF for short. Um, yes, though, you know, our product does have those things in it, but there may be other companies out there that do. And so I'm not trying to plug that just saying, you know, the things that I think you should look for are things that I know can identify and stop refund fraud because it's doing it now. So like I said before, it's hard to say that any one product is perfect, but, you know, the products and companies that I've seen so far, and I definitely try to, you know, pay attention to them and um, I'm almost always alerted to them when merchants are, you know, contacted by any of these companies, you know, hey, do you know anything about this? Do you think they're legit, et cetera? Usually they're just solving one part of the problem, just one method of one type or just one type of it and not all five different methods um, in one product. So that's, you know, and if you only have an INR problem now, if you only have, you know, people claiming that they didn't receive the items, you're going to have fake tracking ID fraud and you're going to have damaged claims and you're going to have broken you know, broken items and and empty box claims, you're going to be getting boxing stuff back. It's just, it's really, they're, they're very predictable um, when you've studied them for as long as I have. And yeah, every once in a while, they come up with a new little twist of a methodology. But so far, I have yet to see anything that doesn't fit into one of those five categories. So, you know, there have been some existing fraud companies that have tried to identify this in a similar way to payment fraud, but you just can't. You can't look at someone's order and say, okay, next week, they're going to call us and say that it didn't arrive, but that one is. Or, you know, in two weeks, they're going to send us back an empty box and claim that they returned the item to us and want their refund and their money back. 
you can't, it's the same thing with what we usually refer to as friendly fraud chargebacks. You can't identify those at the very beginning. Now, some people may take a consortium approach and say, well, if it has the same phone number, it has the same email address as other accounts that have done this, then we can assume that they'll do that. And yeah, that's true. But one, that doesn't take care of all of the different refund methods and types, but it also there's a workaround and a lot of the good ones are doing it. They're ensuring that every new account that they create doesn't have anything the same, doesn't have the same IP, doesn't have the same device, doesn't have the same phone number or email. They're meticulous about this and they're doing it across lots of companies too. Whereas a few years ago, you could pretty much assume that John Smith was going to make purchases at 27 different retailers you know, all with the same information. And because the retailers didn't talk to each other, probably wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't get caught. That's not the case now um, for various reasons. And so they're the good ones are meticulous about that. And they're making sure that it doesn't have overlap. So taking a consortium approach alone, it just isn't going to be enough. And, you know, I've also seen some of these newer companies pop up with a consortium approach or with this API approach or other similar things where they believe that they can tell the difference between someone claiming that they deserve a refund and someone not. I think that the only way you can do that is with lots and lots of data, data from when they made the purchase, data from when they're making the request and comparing those, but all the way through. Um, and you know, tracking data at a macro level and at a micro level. Like I said, and I'm going to say it again, you can't just be looking at you know one type. You can't just be looking at the INRs or looking at the fake TIDs. You have to be looking at all of them because they will they will cycle through. And sometimes I'll do like a combination of them, but most of the time it's one of those. Or well, all of the time it's one of those five. So you need to find a solution that provides you with, you know, all the data and not just an arbitrary decision. So not something that says, yes, issue that refund. No, don't issue that refund. And certainly don't go with, you know, yes, approve that order or decline that order because of refund fraud. You are going to decline way too many good orders. And that's not sustainable to your business, not to mention just a horrible customer experience. So you should making be making the decision at the time of the claim. And it's okay to say it's going to take, it's going to take five minutes. It's going to take 10 minutes. It might take, you know, for some solutions, it might take 12 hours. I don't know, but it's okay to say this. We need to review this decision uh, and we'll let you know uh, by tomorrow you know, via email or whatever it is, you know, preferably that decision is made in seconds or minutes, but it's okay to have a process like that, especially if it's going to save your company and ultimately your customers a lot of money and a lot of grief. And the data will help you tell a story to your executives and to other departments that need to be in the loop, right? There's a lot of departments that are involved in this and they all need to understand what's really happening. And then they need to be be able to weigh in on the solutions. You might think that you have one problem, but then you actually have another, right? So putting GPS trackers on every single item or serial numbers on every single item isn't going to solve things if that's not your problem. If INRs aren't your problem and you're putting tracking devices in every single one, okay, well, you'll know where they are, but then what can you do about it? You know, you'll know that it arrived at the location, but then it's just, he said, she said, and you don't have, you know, proof or decisioning. And then more than anything, all the data, you know, will tell a story to help you 
lead to better decisions and to be able to say, okay, this is what it looks like when a good customer is making a claim. And this is what it looks like when someone is, you know, telling the truth. And you can tell that with lots of data from, you know, all the way through their customer journey, from the time they entered your website, all the way through to when they made the purchase. And then when they made the refund request, you've got to be able to track all of that. And the data should be actionable and malleable. It should be customizable, right? The problem that one company has isn't going to be the exact same problem as the other company has because of different types of products and different price points and different types of refunders. So you need to be able to customize it to the problem that you have now, but to be able to grow it to the problem that you're going to have in six months. And you need to be able to customize it for your terms of service and for what your company wants. Some companies are going to want to be more aggressive on this. Other companies are not going to want to make decisions. They're just going to want to ingest the data and try to, you know, stop things uh, further up or, you know, or just be aware of it, right? Maybe some companies say, okay, well, now we know the size of this problem. We're not willing to risk making anyone upset whatsoever. So we're just going to keep doing it, but we'll track it. That's okay. That's your company's decision, but at least you're able to give you know your executives that information. Right now, most companies aren't even tracking the type of claim that's made, so you don't know how many INRs you have compared to how many you know claims that it was returned to the warehouse. You have at the basic level, you need that, but there's so many other things and patterns of, within the data that you can find. So okay, here's all the outliers. And it's, it's similar to the way that we fought fraud, you know, at the very beginning when there was carding fraud, very similar to that, just at a different point in time in the customer journey and with a lot more data than we had then because technology has come out far. So there are options and there are things that, you know, really work. And the only reason why I don't, you know, talk about the refund module that you know we created more often is because I don't want this what podcast to become an infomercial for it. But I also have a consultancy and need to, you know, take care of my current clients as well. And so I'm kind of straddling the fence here and <laughs> doing both. Not the same fence that refund.ai straddled, let's just be clear. But you know, straddling the fence of consulting and having a product, but it's I'm very proud of what it has done so far and know that it's going to go further. Um, on that note, I think that we're going to try to put together a webinar for merchants only um, to be able to show them how the tool works. I'm going to set up a Google form for you to, to you know provide your name and email address if you're interested. Um, and we'll send you an invite when that happens. I, um, I'm kind of just doing this off the fly, but um, I'd hate to talk about something and have anyone be interested and not know how to get more information. So I will create that and put it in the show notes uh, before this episode is published. So yeah, and then the last thing I'm going to say is that anything you do from a decisioning point of view has to be layered with investigations and law enforcement. That's the only way you're going to get these guys to really go away. There are a few retailers who have started to do that and have started to send out letters, you know, if we know who you are and we're, you know, seeking law enforcement or sending them collections bills or things like that. And those are the only retailers that I ever see where people say, don't even mess with them. It's not worth it. And so you have to have a layered approach with that. Working with law enforcement, being able to, you know, track this information and really look at the biggest players and hold them accountable. 
I mean, look at what Amazon did. I read through the report a couple months ago and I was so happy about it because it gave other retailers permission to be able to do the same thing. And I know several big name retailers that have taken that article, you know, or the actual claim in civil court against the refunders and their customers and a couple of their insider employees saying, hey, look, Amazon is pressing charges or Amazon is civilly suing these guys, hoping that law enforcement and prosecutors will get involved and will actually charge them and not just you know say that they owe a financial penalty that they may be, not be able to pay. And so because of that, you know, you're able to now say, look, this is what Amazon's doing because they know it's the only thing that you know, ultimately works. I think it has to be in conjunction with making decisions day to day on if you're going to pay out this claim or not, but it can't, neither one can be done by itself. You have to have that layer. That's the only way if you want this problem to go away to really go away in the first place. Well, guys, with that, I'm going to end up this episode. Uh, like I said, I've had a weird day. It was just weird to see it. I'm not surprised and I'm not you know, like complaining or anything like that. And I, you know, still think it's important to share this information uh, as much information as I can on this platform. You know, so far, at least uh, looking at my own data from uh, the podcast, I don't think anyone on that side has uh, found this podcast yet. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised, but it still was weird. It was just, you know, kind of a Oh, collision of two different worlds or something <laughs> like, wait a second, that's me. Um, I was actually hoping to learn about a new tool that I didn't know about. <laughs> so I was disappointed in that way. <laughs> well, with that, I'm going to end this episode for this week, but I will look forward to speaking with you next week. I have a pretty intriguing guest. Uh, I think they're going to have to be anonymous, but uh, you're going to definitely want to listen to that episode. It's a topic I've never discussed on the podcast and their story is pretty wild. So look forward to that next Tuesday and I will talk to you next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.